0: heart and mind we continue the study making sense of the cross there's no one icon so closely associated with christianity and perhaps nothing so misunderstood and maybe even unexamined at times oh and be sure to stay tuned for ask a scholar at the end but let's get started in the first episode we named five theories of what the cross means the ransom theory christus victor moral influence, penal substitution, and last scapegoat. We also noted how each of these not only have their supporters, but verses in the Bible that seem to to bolster that kind of view. But we remember that both testaments are kind of varying schools of thought, both in the old and in the new, you have competing theologies. The Gospels and the letters don't see things always the same way. The Gospels don't even see things the same way. And when it comes to the cross, this is true. So when someone builds their atonement theology or they're making sense of the cross theology based on Scripture and their understanding, we, we have to acknowledge that that's one way to view it. Here's another way to view it, and here's another way to view it. And they're competing and conflicting because... Nobody, not even the writers of scripture, have access directly to the mind of God. And so all of us are, well, as Anselm put it, there is this faith seeking understanding. But we don't have understanding completely. So as we're thinking about making sense of the cross, we've come as people of faith, but we're trying to make sense of things. At the end of episode one, I dangled this little goody out there. What if the meaning of the cross is separate from salvation? So, for most of us, we grow up thinking, well, the meaning of the cross, whatever it is, we may not even know these schools of thought, whatever it means, it it has something to do with how we are made right with God, saved, whatever words you want. But I mentioned how in our in Judaism, our Jewish brothers and sisters have never viewed that, that away. Um, from the very beginning, they, they thought, well, individual sins that are committed, God forgives, and they have rituals of sacrifice, of guilt offering or sin offering, Yom Kippur. And this was the ritual for forgiving sins. But their salvation, their standing with God was a given because... God chose them, and God forgives, and God saves, and God is gracious. God calls them out of Egypt. This is just who God is. And the question I asked is, what if it's possible we need to learn something there from our Jewish brothers and sisters? What if our standing with God and is a given? What if that's who God is, and that our forgiveness of sins is something that we don't have rituals of sacrifice as Christians, but we confess and repent, and God forgives? So it's an interesting kind of thing. As we explore further, you can keep that in the back of your mind, but let's try to think of what do we do to make sense of the cross, this most central icon as part of our Christian heritage and history. When I taught at the seminary, one of the questions I was often asked about various things is, okay, what difference does this make? and the this could change from one lecture to another, whatever the topic might be. But what they were asking is, what's the point? When people ask that about the making sense of the cross, if they look at the five theories that we looked at in episode one, and they say, well, yeah, but what difference does it make? Well, you might expect a professor to say it makes a lot of difference, but here is my answer. Each one of these theories of the cross in prints an image of God upon us. Each one of them says something about who God is and how God is with us in the world. So, for instance, you say, God ransomed us from sin and Satan. Well, that may or may not be true theologically. Some people, early church fathers mostly, held to that. It's fairly innocent but it says something about the nature of God. On the other hand, the penal substitution, which we'll look at again today, that says something about the image of God, something different. Some of these theories are harmless enough theologically. If God, in raising Jesus from the dead, the Christus Victor view, says that Jesus conquered death and evil and sin and the devil, in the cross and resurrection. Well, some people believe that, some people don't. Seems harmless enough theologically, but there's not really much ethical uh, implication either way. Whereas, and this is the one that's perhaps not only the most popular but the most troubling, the penal substitution, maybe it's accurate, maybe it's not, but think about what it says about the very nature of God. It doesn't, it doesn't, um, doesn't just say something about God, but some people find it rather dangerous. Remember last week in the podcast, I read a little bit from Roberta Bondi's memoir, Memories of God, and her essay and called the green tiled bathroom. At the end of that, you remember she, she said she had just kind of lost the meaning of the cross. It was like having a stroke or something. And she prayed, please God, tell me again, what is the reason for the crucifixion? This is how she continues. On the eighth night, I had a terrifying dream. I dreamed I was with Richard, her husband, in my great aunt Blackie's farmhouse on the hill outside Morganfield, Kentucky. It was the middle of a good smelling early summer day with the insects humming and the hassock fan whirring on the front porch. Sunlight poured through the kitchen into the back hall where I stood, but I was in darkness. I was sobbing and wringing my hands outside of her green-tiled bathroom. In the bathroom, Richard was kneeling in the tub, his neck held over the drain by a powerful-looking dark-haired man with a huge knife that I knew had come to kill me. Don't hurt her, Richard was saying. Take me. Just don't hurt her. Take me. In my dream, I was dying with grief. I wanted to shout, No, no, I'm here. Leave Richard alone. But I couldn't make any sound. As I watched in horror, the killer slit Richard's throat and red blood flowed all over the green tiles. Then the dream was over and I began to rise out of sleep, shivering, sobbing, and covered with sweat. I became aware that Richard was shaking me, petting me, and calling me by name. At once, I remembered my prayer, shuddering with horror. In that very instant, the words formed in my mind, this is what you've always thought the crucifixion is about, but this is not it. And I knew that both were true. So for Bondi, she comes to this realization that she'd always thought of it that way, but that That's not the way it is. In other words, she came to a moment in which she questioned the penal substitution. If someone believes that Jesus paid a ransom, eh, maybe they believe it theologically, maybe they don't, but there's no real harm ethically. The problem with the penal substitution is that not only is it questionable theologically, but it leads to some rather dangerous ethical implications. So let me just say a little word about the theological challenges. This view arises in the 11th century and is really popularized by Anselm. He was a lawyer and he used really kind of a legal framework that we have been brought, you know, on trial before God kind of thing. One of the questions that theologians have asked is, okay, if Jesus takes a blow that was meant for us, remember it's substitution, where does this blow come from? For Anselm, the answer was it comes from God. God needed to punish us and Jesus took our place. Most theologians would say that whatever blow is coming our way is a result of sin. Could be sins that we've done and so we, as the old saying goes, get what we deserve. But on the other hand, There is this kind of capital S sin in the world, a condition. So tsunamis uh, wreak havoc on people. That's sin in the world, but they didn't do anything. But the notion that God is out to get us lies at the base of this penal substitution. And I want to just chase a little rabbit for a moment. In the Old Testament, there are two names for God that are the most commonly used. Elohim, which is Hebrew and is translated most often, like for instance in the New Revised, as God, and Yahweh, which is translated as Lord. There is only one God story, one Elohim story, in which God is violent, and it's the flood story. Remember, God looks around, regrets having made us, is gonna wipe it all out. Noah, of course, is on the scene, He and his family, the animals, they survive. And then God says at the end, never again, never again will violence be the answer. And puts the rainbow, or more likely the Hebrew there is a kind of play on words, the bow with an arrow no longer pointing at the earth. Violence is not the answer. The Yahweh stories, the Lord stories, they're more violent they're the ones that say god told them to take the land and to slaughter every woman and child and man and so forth in the in there and and most scholars would say nowadays that may be more of israel's own propaganda putting this on this yahweh but not true to the character of god for me god is not a person who god is not a deity who says slaughter people Um, the Noah story testifies that God's nature is never again will violence be the answer. So a theological challenge is then how can the penal substitutionary be a view consistent with God? God needs blood. God needs to kill and would kill you, but Jesus instead gets killed. I think one of the most fascinating questions, Tony Jones, Mark Hine, both of whom I've referenced, if God is owed a debt. If we're in debt to God, why can't God simply forgive it? This is the same God who through Jesus tells us that we are to forgive one another as God forgives us. Why can't God do what God asks us to do, to forgive the debts that are owed to us by others? It's a fascinating question to think about. But let's say that one holds to that view theologically. Here's the problem ethically. Way too often, Christians have glorified war too easily. Beginning with the Emperor Constantine in the fourth century and really pretty much ever since, war and Christianity have become entwined. For the first couple hundred years, Christians weren't even allowed to serve in the military. But by the fourth century, they're promised rewards in heaven for fighting in the name of God. And so much of this, especially Anselm's view, thousand years later, is really tied to the Crusades, the notion of fighting the infidel. So there's a kind of glorifying of war and suffering and death um, in that view of the cross. Anti-Semitism from the beginning until today, often called Christ killers, and they'll tie it. uh, I've, I've mentioned before in previous studies, how there are traditions in Europe, for instance, where on Good Friday, they remember the crucifixion of Jesus and they have an effigy of Judas, which they dangled on a rope. But the problem is that the effigy looks very much like a modern Jew. And so this notion of anti-Semitism tied to the crucifixion. Some people, domestic abuse is rationalized. Horrible stories where women are told Yes, you're suffering, but Jesus suffered for your sins. You can do this. Horrible thing to say. How about children's image of God? It's kind of hard to explain to children how God is loving and yet needs this blood. And then, of course, there's the meaning of communion and the kinds of prayers that get offered at the table. What do we mean by this bread and this wine? Well, clearly, the body and blood of Christ is the symbolism. But how we interpret the meaning of that, that's a different matter. I think I mentioned last time that the penal substitution, as many problems as it has, changed my life. I came to faith as a young man because of a conviction of sin and the need for God in my life. And I didn't know any better than a penal substitution. So that view, that Jesus took my place, changed my life. But here's the thing. What if we had a more loving way to make sense of the cross instead of a judgmental and punishing view? How many more people might be attracted to Christianity if their view of God was not that God needed blood, yours or mine or Jesus, but another way altogether. How might that make a difference? The two that we're gonna look at, and really one of them just briefly, are alternatives to this penal view that is so prevalent. We mentioned them last week, it's the last two on the list, moral influence and the last scapegoat theory. So moral influence, Peter Abelard was a poet, and artist, priests, and the view of Anselm was something he just could not abide, this penal view. For him, that was inconsistent with the very nature of God. The cross, for him, was the ultimate example of sacrificial love and grace. So Abelard taught that Jesus' life and death were exemplary, which is another name, by the way, for this, this view, exemplarist. And it, by being exemplary, it would inspire us to live more loving and full lives. Now, if you look at the teachings of Abelard, if you look at others who write about Abelard, both for and against, a lot of Abelard's teaching can be dismissed. and Some of it can seem to make uh, the example of Jesus just... You know, that only he only came to make us into scouts or something like that, you know, good, loyal, trustworthy, etc. I think it's kind of an oversimplification. But if you modify Abelard's moral influence, it is pretty clear in the Gospels that Jesus does not just come to die, but to live and show us how to live. But here's the thing. For how he lives, Rome puts him to death. He feeds people, he heals people, and he does this for free. Rome was taxing things like that, and Rome could not let this go unchecked. The Gospel of Luke, for instance, it ties the crucifixion to Jesus and taxes. I mean, think about it. The tax collectors in the Gospels, they all become followers of Jesus. It's not to say all tax collectors did, but it's a clear evidence of a movement, and this was threatening to the empire. The moral influence theory, it's a really wonderful one, to be honest. And I think I mentioned last week um, James Carroll's novel, The Cloister. It's a really good introduction, obviously, um, you know, in a more narrative format. But Carroll's a good scholar, and he's done really good work here and it helps you to understand it. It gives you insights into the genius of Abelard, his eccentricities, his story, his love story with Heloise, the awful castration. I mean, it's just brilliant. Plus you get some modern day uh, fiction intertwined with it, and it's really excellent. But the one we want to look at in a little more detail, and it's definitely heady stuff, is The Last Scapegoat Theory, and this one is built on the work of René Girard. René Girard famously said that religions don't give birth to violence. Violence gives birth to religion. And he uses what he calls mimetic theory or mimesis. And believe it or not, this is a word you know. At least if you remember what a mimeograph was, a way to make copies. Because that's really what the word means, to copy. So here's his theory about mimesis. And think about this in terms of the earliest peoples and earliest tribes in the world, wherever that might be. Mimesis says people have from an early age the ability to imitate the behavior of others. I know this to be true. At this moment, we just celebrated the first birthday of our grandson, Elliot. And right now, you can make a little face at him, and he'll make it back. And you can make another face, and he'll make that one back. He's only one. We have an ability to imitate the behavior of others. We read the faces of others, says Girard, and can detect their emotions. Which, again, is true. If you make a mean face at little Elliot, and I don't know why you would want to do that, he can detect that as well. Even dogs can detect it. So, Girard says, then culture, our interaction with other people, becomes as important as biology in shaping us. But here's the catch. We can also falsely project the motives and behaviors of others. We can misread what they intended. So imagine early peoples, early tribes, copying each other, seeing, reading their faces, etc., but misunderstanding. These misunderstandings and these interactions could lead to violence. And in the face of violence, more cycles of violence arise. So what is a people to do? What is a tribe to do? This is where Girard says the notion of scapegoating arises. Now there's some key words here. Unconsciously, that's a key word. Unconsciously, he says, Humans find another solution to violence. In other words, they haven't really thought this through. Illogically, a third party will pay for the wrongs. This animal or person will be offered up. And the Greek word for that is a pharmakos. You know that word as well. We get pharmacy from it. The word can mean a poison, but also a cure. You know the medicines at a pharmacy. You could down a bunch of them and be dead, but you could also save your life with some of them. There were actually groups. uh, In 5th century BCE, Athens, for instance, they kept pharmakoi, that's the plural, prisoners, on hand so that when a situation arose and someone needed to die to appease the gods or whatever, this pharmakos would be offered up. The one, Gerard says, who's offered up will be both a victim and likely become some kind of hero. I hope this is starting to make some sense. And neither of the offending parties will be guilty of wrong. Now, when I say I hope it's beginning to make sense, I hope you get the point. There's an logic here, though, because violence with religious undertones, this offering a person up, will somehow end the violence. Well, it's not really logical, of course. But remember this, in these early peoples, there were no institutions and legal powers to which one might turn. It's not like they had courts of law and lawyers and books and here are the laws and what do you... But even our own laws today aren't always logical. For instance, in our country, if a person has a problem and is addicted to a deadly drug, we put them away. That doesn't totally make sense. Heim says, Mark Heim says, the sacrificial dynamic, and he's really drawing on Girard here, is most effective when it remains invisible. Because it's illogical, right? It doesn't even make sense. So therefore, texts, written texts, that hide scapegoating, that don't, don't address this, they foster scapegoating. But if a text shows it for what it is, it undermines scapegoating. This, by the way, is people uh, why people who are opposed to the death penalty think that people should have to be present for the execution and watch it. That if they participated in it, they would see the horror of it. And a lot of people think that's a kind of modern scapegoating. Mark Haim says, the cross is a good, bad thing. In other words, we're saved by what shouldn't happen. Because two things are clear in the Gospels. Jesus is supposed to die, the Gospels say, but he's innocent and shouldn't die. In other words, the Gospels put out there in front of us, and it's been there all along, the injustice of this in order to put an end to it. So, for instance, Girard and Haim and others point to a kind of classical plot that goes along with such things, and you'll see this in a gospel story. For instance, this is the recipe to make this thing happen, an escalated conflict within the community think about in the Gospels. Jerusalem at the time of Passover, it's swelling with the population, but there's the tension with Rome still there, occupying, watching their move. There's conflict in the air. A foreigner of humble beginnings enters. Now, when I say a foreigner, Jesus is a Jew, but he's from the Galilee. That's up north. This is Jerusalem. It's in the south. This foreigner is humble and he enters the scene. Escalated charges are then made against him. He's perverting the nation, they say. The crowds unanimously call for his death. You're starting to see a scapegoat kind of mentality arise. And then there's this most amazing kind of verse. Luke 23, 12 says, From that time on, Herod and Pilate became friends, They had previously been enemies. Peace among former enemies because we've put it off on someone else. Sometimes you'll hear the notion about the death of Jesus that he took our place. As Haim and others have pointed out, really Barabbas is the only person of whom it can be said Jesus took his place. Remember, he's the one they said, Well, do you want me to crucify Jesus or this Barabbas, whose name is also Jesus Barabbas? Heim says, the rescue of Barabbas is good news for him alone. That Jesus took his place, yeah. But the end of the victimage mechanism would be good news for all. So he goes on to say, Jesus' death isn't the one time an innocent person was offered as a scapegoat. So in that sense, eh, his death isn't unique. It is unique, however, in that this becomes the way the Gospels kind of propose God's solution to expose and thereby end religious violence with his own son's story. It's hard to get your mind around it, I, I understand, but just think of it as an unearthing of it. It's, the Gospels are, in a sense, doing what the little boy does in that old uh, legend. The emperor has no clothes. The Gospels are saying, wait, don't you see what's going on here? and thereby trying to expose it and put an end to religious scapegoating. So as a kind of summing up, what difference do theories of the cross make? Three things. According to the moral influence theory, in the cross and resurrection, God vindicates the life of Jesus who came to show us how to live. Second, according to the last scapegoat theory, in the cross God ends religious scapegoating and violence and then third god saves us as always not by means of violence but grace because that's who god is so today's ask a scholar question is fascinating i told you i would say that pretty much every time here it is growing up catholic i never knew there was another way than infant baptism as an adult i learned about traditions that baptized later but practice infant dedication. How are we to understand the differences? Well, it's true that baptism for Catholics and many others, by the way, Episcopalian, Lutheran, Presbyterian, Methodist, it comes early in a person's life. And the church understands it to be an act of God initiated and confirmed by the church. Clearly, the person being baptized doesn't have agency or understanding But when that child gets older and has a degree of agency, in many traditions, they'll practice what is called confirmation. At that point, what God and the church had enacted earlier is now accepted and acknowledged publicly by that person who's a young adult. As Luther and others after him began to question certain practices within Catholicism, eventually the group we now know as Protestants would come to a different view, although not all of them since I already mentioned that Some of them practice infant baptism. But there was this other group, the radical reformers, as they were called. They thought agency was more important on the part of the person. A person needed to confess their faith in Jesus and be baptized publicly to offer that testimony. Uh, They became known, some of them, as Anabaptists, baptized again because these people had been baptized as infants. They said, no, you need to be baptized as an adult. This explains too why other Protestant traditions wait until the child is older and can understand, kind of this notion of an age of accountability. But here's an interesting twist between the Protestant and I'll just say Catholic, even though it's really bigger than that. Whereas Catholics and others baptize young, then confirm later, and some Protestants baptize later, these Protestants do have a tradition known as infant dedication. The family brings the baby, who has no agency, and the family promises to bring up the child in the ways of God, and the congregation agrees to be supportive as well. So in some ways, although this is oversimplified, the difference between early and late on these isn't all that significant except for what they name these moments and the rituals associated. One of the questions raised, though, in this, and it's really worth pondering, is how much a person's agency matters and when. Clearly, different traditions have different views. So, if you have a question about the Bible or theology, send me an email. I'll be glad to answer it. I'll answer all the emails, and I might even pick your question to be on here. My email is mikeg at ccccckc.org. Thanks for joining us on Heart and Mind.